Search us, O God, and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Do not only listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. When I was a lad, a fishing, because that's what I spent my childhood doing, was playing, was fishing and playing football. That was it until I was about 13, constantly. Um, I unexpectedly one day caught a very large eel out of the River Neen, which is the river I grew up on. I hauled this eel up the bank and uh, I tried to reach down and grab it. Well, you know the expression, don't you, as slippery as an eel. I know from first-hand experience how slippery an eel is. I couldn't grab this wretched thing. It shook the hook out of its mouth and then proceeded to, it didn't go back into the water, it zoomed across the field. And I literally sprinted after this eel about 200 metres across the field, trying to grab it as I went, until this wretched eel slithered its way back down into the river, which had itself snaked around the back of the field. That eel, reader, it's me. C'est moi, the eel, it's me. It's me, or at least it would be if I didn't guard against my eel-like characteristics. What are they? An elongated, slimy body? Well, hopefully not. I'm talking about my instinctive attempt to wriggle out of making a proper response to the word of God. Are you aware of that eel-like uh, trait in yourself? That you too are prone to coil and writhe and slither and slide out of letting his word have its force in you. Well, this is the last sermon in a series of four studies on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's recorded in Luke chapter 6. And I'm going to now just briefly take, the, uh, take a long run-up through the whole sermon so that we can feel the proper force of the conclusion, which is what we're looking at today. So if you've got Luke 6 open in front of you, it would be a great help. Luke chapter 6. Jesus opens there in Luke chapter 6, um, the sermon, starting there in verse 20. He looks at his disciples, blessed are you who are poor, and so on. He starts off, really, by making an announcement, a stunning announcement, which drives a wedge into the very heart of history. This world, says Jesus, in its current form, is put on notice. The kingdom of God, with Jesus upon its throne will soon judge and entirely replace history as we know it. But in the meantime, there is this wedge that has been struck into the heart of history, and history is divided into two tracks. Some side with Jesus, living for a future kingdom. And they are blessed, even if it means in this current phase of history, losing everything, they are blessed. Whereas... The others who side with the world and its values, they are under judgment. Even if, for now, it appears that they have everything that the world can give, riches and so on, success and prosperity and praise. 
Adam took us through those revolutionary blessings and woes a few weeks ago. Jesus' followers, we learnt then, they live now, but they don't live for now. No, they're looking ahead uh, to that uh, they're blessed, even if they lose everything now, because they're looking ahead to then. See, Jesus takes for granted at the opening of this sermon, he takes for granted as he announces this split in history, he, he takes for granted that his followers will face opposition. So how are they to live with it? Well, two weeks ago, I preached on that famous teaching that occupies the center of the sermon, love your enemies. That's how we enact um, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, in the midst of this hostile situation and this complex um, moment of history where it's split in two, we love our enemies. But partly because we trust that judgment is coming. God will judge them soon, so we don't need to take up our own case against them. And of course, in the meantime, God is full of patience and full of mercy. And so like him, we need to exercise love and mercy and grace, even in the face of hostility. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus develops that teaching in words that Adam covered last week. Uh, we mustn't judge and condemn, but instead we must give and forgive. By the way, that isn't because evil doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter that someone does something um, bad to, to, to you. No, it, it does matter very much. It's because judgment isn't our job. That's why we don't judge. So God says, judgment is mine and I will repay. So it's absurd if we, by our actions, say, no, judgment is mine and I will repay. Because that is basically sitting ourselves on the seat that only God can sit in. We're budging God out of the judge's chair, sitting in it ourselves. And the problem is that if we do that, if we nick his chair, his judgment chair, then he will actually take the standards that we use on other people all too seriously because he'll apply them to us. See, judgment is not our, our job. It's not our job. If we live now in the light of the coming kingdom, we will not judge and condemn. No, we will forgive and love even our enemies and we will receive the most tremendous reward then. And uh, it will be more than a jar of overflowing marshmallows. That was Adam's illustration last week. I noticed it made a return this week as well. I think they're different marshmallows, though, judging by the shape. That's good. Seeing as most of them ended up on the floor in the evening service. Well, the direct teaching in Jesus' sermon actually finishes at verse 38. <clears throat> That's sort of where the direct, head-on teaching ends. In ver from verse 39, what we get is a series of mini-stories, picture stories, mini-parables, basically to make sure that Jesus has grabbed the eel, the eel being the human heart which wriggles and writhes, twists and turns when it hears the words of Jesus. It always does. Uh, you know, Jesus saying to us, be glad to lose out now. Be glad to gain then. Be glad to lose out. You're blessed. Love your enemies. Don't judge. Forgive. 
we instinctively try to dodge the force of his words. Well, the prophet Jeremiah said, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The human heart is deceitful above all things. I've got one of those and so have you. This incredibly deceitful center of our personality and of our lives. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, Jesus' picture stories here are designed to force us to consider our response. Precisely so that our hearts don't deceive us. Deceive us into thinking that we've listened when actually we've done nothing of the sort. So his first illustration there is about a blind person leading another blind person into a ditch. Now that's a sobering little picture. Jesus is saying it is possible for my hearers to be so deceived that they set off leading other people when in fact they themselves haven't understood a thing. Sobering. And then there's a second illustration he he gives there in the very next verse about the student and the teacher. A student is not above his teacher, he says. Um, Yet, of course, how easy it is to listen to Jesus, to watch him love his enemies, um, and to agree that this is an inspirational moral example, and yet not for a moment consider that he expects me to do the same. But a student is not above his teacher. If it happens to the teacher, it must happen to us too. We must do it too. Well, Adam brought out last week, brought out the humour in the next illustration. Another illustration of how we sidestep taking the word seriously. Have you heard of chronic sermon avoidance syndrome? Chronic sermon avoidance syndrome is when basically, or it's chronic sermon deflection syndrome is a particular subset, is a mutation of that particular virus. It's basically that when the sermon is being preached, instead of going, oh, this is for me, I need to take this seriously, it's, I hope they're listening. You see, you deflect it onto somebody else. And that's what is happening here in this story of the, um, of the, uh, the, 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 the person with the, the plank in his own eye um, being more concerned about somebody else's issue than with his own issue. We think the word applies to other people and not to ourselves. No, says Jesus, you must feel the weight of my word pressing upon you, on me, and remove the plank from your own eye. See, we are like those at eel. When it comes to making a proper response to God's word, we are very hard to pin down. Now, at this point, we might throw our arms up in frustration and ask whether, well, what, can we ever know for sure if the human heart, my human heart, has received this word? How can I ever know for sure if I'm so wriggly and deceptive? Well, that brings us to the place where today's reading began. And there is a way that we can know what's really going on in our hearts. See, Jesus concludes his sermon with a series of contrasts. It's shot through with contrasts here. And first, two sets of trees and their fruits, which illustrate two different types of person. And then second, two building projects, which illustrate the contrasting responses to Jesus' word. Now, Each of these contrasts teaches a test, an assessment criterion, which can tell us whether our hearts have responded properly to the word of Christ, 
or not. So first, the trees and their fruit, and from them we learn this principle. Our words reveal our hearts. So simple. Our words reveal our hearts. Let me read verses 43 to 44. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings out good things um, out that are stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So each tree is recognized by its fruit. That principle applies, says Jesus, both to uh, to. Uh, trees and to people and about recognizing trees the fruit tells us two things it reveals the quality of a tree and it reveals the type of tree so is the tree of good quality or poor quality well look at the fruit now yes it's true of course that a, a good a healthy tree occasionally bears a dud but in general overwhelmingly the fruit is good well, on the other hand, we've got a pear tree in our garden just outside our back door um, that produces about three rock-hard, tiny, diseased little pears every season. It is a bad tree. <laughs> the consistently diseased fruit tells us that the tree itself is diseased. It's a bad tree. But, you know, so I just state the the blindingly obvious, but the fact it produces pears at all confirms that it is a pear tree. If our pear tree started growing kiwi fruit, well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. The, the, we wouldn't go, oh, that's interesting, that we've got a pear tree that bears kiwi fruit. No, we would conclude that it was a kiwi fruit tree. Now, the fruit not only reveals the quality of the tree, it reveals its type. So, as Jesus puts it, thorn bushes don't produce figs, briars produce no grapes. Now, Jesus applies it to people. Verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil person brings evil things stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So, is, what, what's the heart full of? Um, is it full of God's words, read, marked, learned, inwardly digested, are they stored there as the most valuable thing this world affords? By the way, those words, the most valuable thing this world affords, those are the words spoken by the moderator of the Church of Scotland at the coronation. And of course today is 70 years since Her Majesty the Queen um, came to the throne. Extraordinary. And uh, God bless her today. But uh, those words come from the coronation service, talking of the scriptures, the most valuable thing this world affords. But it is the word stored there as the most valuable thing this world affords. Are they treasured there above everything else, regulating all the other things, the thoughts, the responses, the ambitions, and so on? Or are other principles supremely cherished there? Are others, other agendas more highly prized well, it will become all too clear over time in what we say and in what we don't say and in the way we say it. It will be clear. See, the mouth is like the, let's go to the world of plumbing now. It is the overflow pipe of the heart. 
if the basin is filled with the word and the spirit of Jesus, then what will fill out of the overflow pipe? Of course, it will, there will be clean water will spill out. But if it's filled with something else, that'll flow out. If it's filled with polluted water, that's what will spew forth. Do, you, we want, do we want to know if the word of God has really taken root in our lives, that we're not deceived? Well, this principle tells us how to know. Our words reveal our hearts. So I challenge you, as, and I challenge myself, let's observe our speech. Just imagine that your mouth was a setting on your radio, that you are a continuously broadcasting radio station. What's coming across those airwaves? What's coming out? It will tell us what we need to know. What's the main content? The consistent themes? The tone? Is my conversation affected in any way and to any degree by the reality of the coming kingdom? Or is it bound only to this current world and all its values? Do, do, does my speech default to the negative and to the critical? Does it come out with a resentful, angry or self-righteous tone? Our words reveal our hearts. Now, of course, no one produces perfect fruit, not until the kingdom has fully come. Of course not. And as a result, I know that there are some of you sitting there with high... As a pastor, I tend to know who are the ones with the hypersensitive consciences. And I know full well that you'll be lashing yourself, going, I'm awful, I'm awful. No, don't. The question is not, do my perfect words reveal a perfect heart? Instead, ask is there evidence in my speech that Jesus' teaching has taken root? Is there a kindness about those who are against me? Is there a gentleness and a patience when I'm tempted to criticize and condemn? Let's ask ourselves. Ask ourselves. Ask yourself this week. Ask the Spirit of God to show you. And if we are aware full well that we fail that test completely, then remember this, Jesus didn't just come to teach us, he came to save us. We are all, actually, we're all bad trees by nature. The scriptures are absolutely crystal clear about that. We're all bad trees by nature. And we can only be transformed into good ones if Jesus Christ and his word come into our life by the Spirit and Jesus comes and saves us and transforms us. And if we ask him to do that, he will do it. So our words reveal our hearts, and that's what we learn from the contrast of the fruit and the trees. But now we come to this very famous contrast between the two building projects. If our words reveal our hearts, it is also true, and this is the second principle to learn here, that only our actions can really validate our words. Because remember that the human heart is slippery as an eel. And so... While over time our speech does indeed reveal the truth of our hearts, there are instances when our words can be utterly misleading. They can mislead other people and we can even deceive ourselves with our own words, which is why Jesus immediately says, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I say. In other words, you've got the right patter. Lord, Lord. But. So calling Jesus Lord is really the very word, the very definition of what we mean when we say Lord, is we're saying you are in charge of me. You have authority over me. You are to be obeyed. So how we contradict ourselves, how our own words are contradicted if we then fail to do what he says. Now, why would that happen? Why would, we, why would somebody, why would we say, Lord, Lord, yeah, I'm, I'm for real, and yet not be? Well, Jesus' brother James, in, the, in, in his letter later in the New Testament, says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Our eel-like hearts, they slip out of making a proper response because we are so prone to self-deception. We think that because we have heard that we know. We think that because we understand and have intellectually grappled and grasped it to some degree, that we have really received it. But it is not the case. No, there, are, the, 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 there is no more orthodox, straight-down-the-line theologian than the devil. He knows his theology, all right. He knows. <laughs> but he doesn't, well. How do we know if we have really received the word? Well, only our actions can validate our claim. And everything depends on making sure that they really do. Now, many of us have known the parable about the two builders since before we can even remember. I, can't, I don't know a time when I didn't know this story of the wise man built his house upon the rock and the song goes on. It's so famous. So famous. The person who listens to Jesus and does what he says so in terms of Luke 6, that is one who joyfully receives present loss as a blessing for the sake of the future kingdom. One who loves their enemies, one who reaches out to those who oppose them, who doesn't condemn and forgives. Verse 48, they are like a person building a house who digs down the foundation on the rock. The flood comes, the torrent strikes the house, but it can't shake it because it is well built. But then there's the person who doesn't do what Jesus says and for all their knowledge they are building a house without a foundation verse 49 the moment the torrent struck that house it collapsed and its destruction was complete so do you remember hello hello look dad's coming to get you <laughs> good to see you lovely to see you remember how the sermon on the plane began Jesus is calling time on history. He's saying this age, is, as, it, as it is currently configured, is heading for judgment. And that's the event represented by the torrent in Jesus' story, the flood coming. Judgment will come. And it will confirm what can in fact be known with reasonable accuracy right now. Which is that only those who actually do what Jesus says really belong to him, no matter what they say. There's a great um, uh, lie that the church too easily buys into, which is that it's basically salvation by sincerity. 
which is that so long as I sincerely believe what I say I believe, then I can't be questioned. It's not true. Jesus doesn't think that's true. Do, if I'm sincere, I will obey what he says. If I don't obey what he says, no matter how sincere I think I am, I'm actually heading for destruction. God, yes, God saves people when they simply put their trust in Jesus. But look at it this way. If we don't obey him, then we clearly don't trust him. How can we say we trust him with our eternal salvation if we don't trust him with our money? How can we say that we trust Jesus with our eternal salvation if we don't trust him enough to forgive the person who we would much rather hold a grudge against? We can't. It's a lie. We make ourselves liars if we don't obey what he says. If we really trust, we will obey. So the judgment, though, when it comes, will expose everything. But then it will be too late for some. It will be, and it will be too late for some who have spent a lifetime listening. And that is profoundly sobering. And surely that reality is stunning enough to stun the eel. To stop the slippery eel sliding around our hearts that are flipping all over the place, trying to avoid the force of his words, and makes us examine ourselves against the two principles we've explored this morning. Tom, do your words uh, reveal your heart? They, they do reveal your heart. What are they saying? What is stored up in your heart? What's stored up in your heart? Your words will tell you. But then again, your words can only be really validated by your actions. Do you act in your life? Does your life take a course it would not otherwise have taken if Jesus had not entered into it? Now let me stress again, just as I wind this up, I am so aware of the danger of a certain oversensitive personality type um, using this as a stick to beat yourself with. Um, and to think, I'm useless, I'm useless, I'm doomed, and you don't even actually, that's actually your heart doing another trick. Because it's actually stopping you from really applying the word of Jesus. It's really fascinating. I know that because I'm a bit like that as well. I assume that if anyone raises a problem, that there could possibly be that I have definitely got it. That's why I could never have been a doctor, apart from the fact I wasn't any good at science. I would have thought I had everything. I'd have had to be a gynecologist or something, otherwise I would have been in all sorts of trouble with... Spiritual hypochondria, that as soon as a spiritual problem is mentioned, oh, I must have it. It must be me. No. This is a test to help you stand. And if you are of that personality type and that temperament, then talk to somebody else who knows you well. Let them help you apply these tests. Don't go off in your own insecurities and try and apply them yourself in that way. Get somebody else to help you. But I think on the other hand, if you listen to this thinking, I don't, I don't think I've got an eel-like heart, then, well, I think you, biblically speaking, you don't yet know yourself. Well, Jesus is the pastor of the church, and he walks among us by his word and by his spirit. We've just heard his word. I'm going to lead us in prayer now that his spirit will apply it to each one of us in the way we need. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, has spoken this word, famous words we've considered this morning. May the Holy Spirit use them to search our hearts, 
reveal the reality about us and lead us in the way everlasting, in repentance and peace. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the ages, the Son of Man. Amen.